pick up in Acts chapter 5. We're going to read verses 12 through 32, and we will walk through that together as a congregation. So as you're turning, I will turn, and as is the tradition of our church, please stand as I read these verses as we honor the Lord. All right, Acts 5, verses 12 through 32 reads, At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them, however. The people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might pass or might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Verse 17. But the high priest rose up, along with all his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on, the, on, all, on the apostles and placed them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gate to the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might stone, be stoned. But when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. You may be seated. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. So the course of the last two months throughout this different different speakers up here, we've walked through the first five and a half chapters of the book of Acts. We've seen the development and the, the structuring of the local church, the early church, and we've seen it go from a group of a hundred some in an upper room to now thousands upon thousands of followers in Jerusalem. We've seen what I would categorize as a pattern and characteristics of the early church. The pattern is this, it's a gathering and going and this is the same pattern that we, this very day, continue in. The early church would gather together. It started in an upper room, and then now in verse 12, we see that they were at Solomon's portico. This was part of the temple grounds that most likely was the only space able to hold thousands of people. It also was a place where Christ taught, so it held symbol, um, a symbol for the church. 
But this pattern of gathering was one for encouragement to hear the preaching of the word and for unity. But then also, not, they didn't just stay there, they went. They, they went out into the streets to Jerusalem to minister and proclaim the gospel. So this pattern of go, gathering and going is one that we, as a church, is the reason we gather this morning. We gather for worship, for the preached word, and then we go out in our lives to our jobs, schools, our families, and proclaim the gospel. So we see the pattern of the church, but there was also distinct characteristics of the early church. And I want to highlight four of them, and one of them we're going to focus in primarily on today. The first characteristic is that they were gospel unified. Some may call this their orthodoxy, their doctrine, their theology was united. In Acts 2.42, we see that they were devoted to the apostles' preaching and teaching. This ultimately was Christ's teaching passed down to the apostles and then passed down to the church. And for the last 2,000 years, it had been passed down to us through faithful preaching. The second characteristic is they took sin seriously. Two weeks ago, when we were beginning in chapter 5, we seen the sins of Ananias and Sapphira. And the fact they sinned against the church and the Holy Spirit and punishment was exacted upon them in a severe way. This ultimately led the church to understand that sin in the church must be dealt with and sin is serious. So much so that in verse 13, we see that the, the community around them dared to associate with them because they knew being a part of a local church meant that their sin would be exposed. Part of the beauty of the community of the church is that when we get in close proximity to one another, we're able to open up, repent, and confess our sins to one another. And sin does not want to be exposed. It wants to be hidden, kept tight, and in darkness. And that's the beauty and characteristic of a local church. The third characteristic is that there was boldness in the proclamation of the gospel. We see in verses 12 through 16 that many multitudes came to faith in Christ. This is addition to the thousands upon thousands we've seen in chapters one through four. The apostles performed signs and wonders, healings, casting out demons. And a discussion on the sign gifts and whether or not they're applicable today could be saved for another sermon. That's not the purpose of this passage. But we have to understand that sign gifts in this time were used to authenticate and to confirm the message of the apostles that they did this through a power of the Holy Spirit that we have inside of us as believers. And the fourth category that I want to focus in on today is persecution. Persecution marked the church, the early church, and it marks the church throughout history and even to this very day. So this morning, my three main points are going to be one, if you're taking notes, this, this is where we're going to be studying. Number one, the reality of persecution Two, the reaction to persecution. And three, the response to persecution. So the reality of persecution. I think it's important to define terms before we move forward. What is persecution? In scripture, there are a Greek and a Hebrew word used for it, but both of their concepts and their meanings hold this idea of being pursued, chased after, pressed upon, pushed down upon, harassed, or oppressed. And this, to me, vitally influences the understanding of persecution within our current age and within the early church. But definitions are one thing, but let's look at scripture and see exactly what Christ himself said about persecution. I'm going to turn to John 15, reading verses 19 and 20, to see what Christ told us as believers about persecution. It reads, 
If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So I think the most important thing we can understand is that persecution is to be expected. It's something that will happen for all of us when we follow the name of Christ, when we proclaim his gospel and call people to repentance of their sins, persecution will come. See, it's through the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel that these early apostles were persecuted. It wasn't this any social program or anything that they taught about how to be a better neighbor or anything. See, we could do all that every single day. We could feed the, feed the poor, clothe the homeless, whatever. But the world would love that. The world will actually most likely partner with a church that only operates in this manner. But what persecution will, when it comes, it comes when the church or the believer will proclaim the gospel and call people to repentance of their sin. This may be difficult to hear or understand because we live in America. We live in a, in a culture where there is religious freedom, but at the same time, we're not the only country in the world. We can have blinders on just due to the busyness of our life and the culture in which we live, and it's important to take the blinders off and see what is happening on the outside world. There's a ministry called Open Doors that collects data on persecuted churches across the globe. And they kind of rack and stack the most persecuted churches. And right now they're claiming that North Korea, the churches in North Korea are the most persecuted. They have the highest level of persecution due to when churches are discovered, pastors, church members are arrested, they are closed, and laws are being passed by the government to stop the preaching of the gospel. In the Middle East, countries like Afghanistan and Iran have violence, death, and mass arrest for anyone claiming the name of Christ. Churches, churches in Africa have raids and violence by terrorist organizations throughout villages. The government, in the sake of keeping the unity of their Islamic groups together, do not claim this as persecution. In China, they've went into the 21st century with their persecution with digital surveillance of the church, closing churches and keeping government control. If you look at the top 10 list of these top churches that are persecuted, it all comes down to government paranoia, terror, um, tyrants that do not want to lose their power, and just the persecution of the church. So that raises the question for us all this morning, it's why does persecution happen? I think the simplest sentence I could give is why it happens is because it happens when authority is challenged. An authority of the world, that is. When sin, evil, darkness, and ultimately Satan is challenged, he lashes back with the persecution of the church. And that's exactly what we see in this passage this morning. In verse 17, we get the idea that the high priest and the Sadducees were jealous of the apostles. And in their jealousy, they decided to persecute them. See, in, in the original Greek language, this word jealousy is the word zelos, which has this idea of zeal, righteous or jealous anger. They viewed themselves as the authority on all things spiritual and political in this manner. See, the Sadducees were a group of religious fundamentalists, a smaller sect of the upper religious rulers that were in close cohort with the Roman rule at the time. See, Rome was 
smart or clever in their way of conquering nations is that they left a political power and a religious power in place to mitigate any rebellion of the people. And because of this, the Sadducees felt they had some perceived authority over the people of this time. They held a very unique theological view as well. This was mentioned a few weeks back, but the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, which is the Torah. In that, they only believed, or it, it reduced their belief into no physical resurrection, meaning that there would be no resurrection of the dead. So imagine their, their anger and their frustration with the apostles, not only preaching that the Messiah had already come, but the people of Jerusalem put him to death and that he raised from the dead. It conflicted their theological position to a T, and they were frustrated and jealous but ultimately they were jealous because of what the apostles were doing in the crowd they were gathering. We have thousands upon thousands of people following the apostles. And I can guarantee you that nobody lined the streets waiting for a Pharisee or a Sadducee to pass by so their shadow would pass over them. So when the Sadducees seen what the apostles were doing and the power that they were doing, physical power and healing, they were jealous of this and wanted it for themselves. It's also important to understand that behind the actions of the Sadducees were not them on their own, but it was the influence in Satan himself that was exacting punishment on the church. Satan will do everything he can to stop and thwart the plans of God. But Satan is not sovereign. He doesn't know the future, and he cannot see what the Lord plans. He will try what he can, but his schemings will never work. One, um, one pastor described it as, think of the sovereignty of God and his plan as a brick wall, an indestructible brick wall in front of you, and Satan as a small, tiny little gnat flying against that wall. That gnat thinks it maybe just flies a little bit faster, a little bit harder into the wall that it can break the plans of the Lord, but it has a higher risk of hurting himself than destroying what God has planned. See, the the Sadducees, Satan, if you want to put in that place, thought by putting the apostles in jail that that would stop the proclamation of the gospel. But ultimately, it was used for God to showcase his sovereignty and his power. See, God works really well from a jail cell. The book of Acts is full of examples of God rescuing his people when only he could do it. See, God works this way so that there was nothing human nature could say and claim as part of the rescue. The apostles could not claim anything of themselves. There was no clever words or persuasion that they could get the guards to release them. They were in a spot where only God could act and only God would receive the glory for this. And that's exactly what he does. God acts in a way that only he can by sending an angel, an angel of the Lord, to rescue them from prison. I do think it's important maybe to take a side from the passage now and just talk about angels quickly. Because I think through culture, through TV shows and other like, we could have a distorted view of what angels are and how they behave. Angels in scripture we know are created beings by God. There are three distinct types of angels mentioned in scripture. There's the archangel. Last week we actually heard about Gabriel the archangel walking and ministering to Mary as telling her about the birth of Christ. We see the cherubim and seraphim also. 
archangels, we know with the three at least throughout scripture, we see Gabriel, we see Michael, and we also see Lucifer who fell to become Satan and taking with him a third of the angels, which are now demons. So we know at some certain point in scripture, the, uh, the angels had a choice. They chose to obey the Lord, to stay with him or fall in rebellion. When angels are mentioned in scripture and shown to be interacting with humans, many times humans try to worship the angel. But in these instances, the angel will redirect their worship and point it back to the Lord. So we know even though the angels are celestial heavenly beings, they still worship God as creator and as holy. But ultimately for this passage this morning, the key function that the angels operate in is that of a messenger. Angel itself means herald and messenger. And that is the role that they function in primarily and in chapter five here. So what is the message of the angels to the the apostles? It's one of encouragement and also one of mission. It is to go stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. The word go here is the same word used in Matthew 28, 19 on the great commission to go to proceed in one's way on a mission and on a focused path, to stand, meaning to establish oneself, to plant oneself in a, in a singular spot for that mission, and to speak, to proclaim, to utter, and to continue to speak the message they were given. So that moves us into point number two, the reaction to persecution. Now, what is this message that the apostles were to preach and to proclaim? In scripture, it tells us it is the, the whole message of this life. Now, that can be, seem cryptic or a little unique, but all it is is the gospel. See, the gospel is the message concerning the words of life for the believer. God is a God of life, and the gospel is what gives life to us. It is the central foundation for all of us as believers for our Christian life. But we may ask, why is it called the message of life? I want to turn to Ephesians 2 and read verses 1 through 5 for us to give context for all of this. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 reads, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is the message of life. See, all of us outside of Christ, when we were born, we were born in sin. We are dead in our sin and trespasses. We are not able to please God. We cannot do anything to meet God's standard for perfect righteousness. The question is, what can a dead man do? It can do nothing. That seems like a lot of bad news, right? But the good news is this, but God, being rich in mercy, sent Christ to earth, We've seen last week that he was born of a virgin. The virgin birth matters. Because of this, Christ was born sinless, and he lived a sinless, perfect life in full obedience to the Father. This means that he 
obeyed every law, every statute of God perfectly, so much so that he was able to meet God's standard of perfect righteousness. And he was able to fulfill the role as our substitutionary atonement on the cross. Christ went to the cross willingly to die for the sins of his people. He took the punishment of God's wrath that we deserved. Think of it this way. He lived the life that we couldn't and died the death that we deserved. But his death wasn't the end. He was buried and on the third day, according to scriptures, he rose again. He conquered sin and death, securing salvation for his people. Now for us, our role in this is placing faith in him. Our faith in repenting of our sin and turning away from Christ and acknowledging Christ as the only means of salvation, our faith justifies us before God. It, it tells us that we are not guilty. Think of it as we, our sin is buried with Christ and in his resurrection, we are raised to new life with him. This is the gospel message of life that we preach and proclaim and it's the same message the apostles proclaimed. It does not change through generations. It doesn't change for culture. It doesn't change. This is the beauty and the majesty of the gospel. And this is the gospel message that will bring persecution for the church. So we have to ask the question, what do we do with that? Well, in my mind, we do exactly the same thing that the apostles did. The apostles went back to the temple and preached. They taught the people this message. See, they very well could have went home. They could have went back to their houses and thanked the Lord for rescue, and that would have been it. And I don't think any of us in this room would have blamed them for taking safety over potential persecution. But in their mind, their goal was obedience to the Lord. There was a direct command from God himself through the angel to go and do this, and they obeyed. That was their reaction. But the Sanhedrin themselves, the religious rulers, had a different reaction to all of this. We see that they actually are gathering the council together, which was the Sanhedrin that we talked about a few weeks ago in chapter 4. It's a circular room that the entire Pharisee, Sadducee groups would gather together and place in the middle of that circle the accused, the offended, or the, and those that, that broke the law. And the whole idea of the circular room was intimidation, was this idea of saying the entire religious community was against this person. And we see in this passage that the, the Pharisees are actually escalating this to intimidation even further. Not only are they included in the council, but they're including the Senate of the Sons of Israel. This is your patriarch, your head of every major household in Jerusalem. Think of it as your, your mafia bosses, right? They're gathered together in this room to further intimidate the apostles. Now they're saying not only are the religious community against you, but the entire nation, the entire households of this community are against you. And who are you going to stand against and stand for the apostles? Are you going to stand with this claim of Christ as Messiah and preach his name? Or are you going to side with the nation? And the apostles have a profound response and they responded within faith and being obedient to the Lord. So that was point two. Point three now, moving in, is the response to persecution. This will cover verses 28 following. The Sanhedrin had a very unique response to the apostles in verse 28. They twist the, the accusation here. They understood that they could not counter the actual message the apostles were proclaiming, 
nor could they contradict any of the miracles that were being performed because they were true miracles. They were, had evidence of change happening. So they couldn't, they couldn't counter this, so they shifted the focus onto the perceived authority the Sanhedrin had over them. And the words here is, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teachings. Imagine an entire city being filled with the preaching of Christ. That is profound and amazing, but this drove their jealousy and anger even further. They were mad that their perceived authority wasn't being obeyed. They were frustrated on top of that by the fact that the apostles were trying to place the blame and the blood of Christ upon them. See, in Matthew 27, verses 25, and really verse 25, we see Pilate washing his hands at, at the punishment of Christ, and he's saying, this is innocent man's blood, I'm, it's not on me. And the people of Jerusalem, which would have included the religious rulers, were all the more willing to take on the guilt of Christ's blood and say, not only us, but for our next generation. Now, in this singular moment, they are faced with the consequences of their sin. They are faced with the fact that Christ rose from the dead and the gospel is being proclaimed and they can't handle it. They are unable to handle the guilt and the weight of their own sin. In fact, it's not even to that next generation yet that they're still not able to handle it. And ultimately, what I want to highlight here is this is one of the two responses many will have when, pro when the gospel is proclaimed and sin is called to re be repented of. One can have the response as we see in verse 14, that multitudes of men and women were constantly being added to their number. Thousands saved, repenting of their sin and joining the church. Or we can have the response of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the religious rulers is they were unable to handle their sin and turned away from the gospel. So outside of the shed blood of Christ, we are under the weight and the guilt of our sin. Martin Luther has a statement here. It says, sin is either with you, lying on your shoulders, or it is lying on Christ, the Lamb of God. But Peter has a different reaction to all this. His response is one of boldness and one of courage and one of faith. His response is one that the church has, has held onto and used throughout, the, throughout its history. For the last almost 2,000 years, we have clung to these words that we must obey God rather than men. Throughout history, highlighting the Reformation era that we're celebrating Reformation Month in October, this time of history, the church and the true church understood that standing for the true gospel, the rediscovery of justification by faith and grace alone was the central, central theme of scripture. And they were willing to go to the death for it. And many were burned, many killed for this gospel and even just trying to get a Bible in a common language. I think back to churches in the last couple of years throughout America and in Canada where their pastors were arrested and put in jail for simply keeping their, their churches open when the government said that it had to be closed. They chose to obey God rather than the men, understanding that scripture is the one thing, that God is the one person that can dictate how the church operates. But ultimately, I want to be very clear in this. This is not a blanket statement for us to disobey men in the world at, at everything, at, on every level. But rather, it's this idea of when we are presented with two choices in front of us. One choice would be to, obedient, to follow in obedience to men. 
and the other to obedience with, with God. And if by choosing the obedience of men, we would be in direct violation of the commands of the Lord and therefore in sin. We cannot sin against the Lord and maintain obedience with the world. We have to always choose to be obedient to God. This is the call and the context for this passage. And that's the call upon us in the church today. And it will always be as long as the church exists on this earth. So church, I do want to leave us in a spot of, of application here though. Because this can seem kind of ethereal or, or removed from it because we don't experience persecution on a, on a daily basis like many in the world do. So what do we do with this passage of scripture? Well, ultimately, it's about the proclamation of the gospel. We are all called to do it. We all need to step in faith and proclaim it. It can be a simple conversation at work, within our families, even after church out in a restaurant. But that's the call upon the church and a call upon every individual believer is to proclaim the gospel. And I think it would be important in this moment, though, is to leave us with some some tangible help in doing that. So I want to look at Peter's conclusion here in verses 30 through 32 to give us some, some guidelines and some assistance in proclaiming the gospel. So if you're continuing to take notes, there are four key elements that Peter uses in his conclusion to the Sanhedrin that I believe that as Russ believers, we need to include in our gospel proclamation. The first is a mention of the crucifixion. We see in verse 30 that Peter talks about the death of Christ by hanging on a cross. We have to include the mention of the saving work of Christ. We have to understand why Christ came, why he died. Why was it necessary for him to bear the wrath of God and to take away the sins of all those who believe in him? Why was this necessary? Secondly, we need to include a mention of the resurrection. Jesus defeated sin and death. We see that in verse 30 as well because it says, God our fathers raised up Jesus. God of our fathers raised up Jesus. The resurrection matters. Without it, Christ would not have secured salvation for us. The resurrection shows that Christ defeated sin and death and was victorious over the grave. The third component in all this is the ascension. Verse 31 saying he now sits at the Father's right hand. We know that Christ, sure, rose from the dead. He appeared to many for a short time after the resurrection, but now he sits at the right hand of the Father. He is in heaven, ruling and reigning over us. But not just that, he intercedes on our behalf. He hears our prayers. He cares for us and prays for us. Because of his ascension, we know that he sent the Holy Spirit. So for the fourth component is the gospel witness. We know the Holy Spirit came down and it resides in all of us as believers. And this affects our heart so that we are changed. Our affections are changed to one that we want to obey the Lord and be obedient to him in proclaiming the gospel. And we do this because we are changed and we want to see a lost and dying world changed as well. So again, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and the gospel witness. These four components should allow us to properly explain, proclaim, and preach the gospel to all those around us. It should give us confidence that scripture acknowledges these things. And if Peter was able to have confidence in the front of certain death and certain punishment, so should we in our culture. 
So church, just a few reminders here as we close. Persecution is to be expected. If we claim the name of Christ, it will come. It's not a matter of if, but when. Our church in America has understood safety for, for far too long, in my opinion. The world is sinful, and America has done many things to hurt the heart of the Lord. And persecution will come as a refining fire to refine the American church. But when persecution does come, my prayer is that we would have the same boldness and faith and trust in the Lord that the apostles did. That they did not understand what may have lied ahead of them from the prison walls. They may have not expected the Lord to act in any certain way and that they would be there forever and they would surely die. But their faith was in the Lord and they consistently and faithfully proclaimed the gospel. And so thirdly, may we always be ready to proclaim the gospel. I hope these little assistant aids will help in our understanding of scripture and understanding of the gospel so that we can go boldly and proclaim it. But that is what we are to do. No matter if persecution ever comes for us, we have to boldly and accurately and faithfully proclaim the gospel. So church, be encouraged. The Lord is with us. Pray with me.